Okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, it's Sukkot, and I want to go over like a whole kind of like compendium of uh, Sukkot teachings about the Sukkah, about this time of year that we're in, about this cycle that we're in going from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Sukkot to Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last day of Sukkot, which is the culmination of this, of this cycle, about what it says about our relationship with, um, with Hashem, because, you know, just a lot of life is uh, couples therapy between you and God. And, and you've you got to get that relationship down because that is the primary relationship in life. And so that's, uh, everything stems from that. So, um, so we're going to talk about that. And, uh, and also today is Rebbe Nachman of Breslov's uh, Yurtzeit. Magen um, his, his merit should be a, a protection for us and, um, you know, one of the greatest uh, tzaddikim that ever lived, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. And I, I heard a lot of reports about just uh, Uman this year and just what's going on there and just amazing, amazing things. That's where Rabbi Nachman is, is buried. And, of course, it's, it's one of the great uh, spiritual happenings, maybe the great spiritual happening among the Jewish people today. Once a year in, uh, in Uman, Russia, in the Ukraine... Uh, a couple of hours outside of Kiev, tens of thousands of people, you know, 30 to 40,000 people in that, in that general uh, number turn out and from every walk of Jewish life all go. And it's like, um, it's this, uh, th- the way it was described to me is from someone who's been there for the last 20 years, that it's like living in the times of Mashiach because it's, there's this sense of, complete unity and complete love and just uh, just just that's it you know I, I haven't been myself but you know I've, I've heard that from so many different people um, so anyway today is Rebbe Nachman's Yurtzeit and uh, and I, I, I just want to say over a story um, that I heard about Rebbe Nachman one of my favorite favorite stories and then we'll talk about some other things. But I heard this from Reb Shlomo. I never saw this in a book, but I heard it from Reb Shlomo. And so that's, uh, so that, that's fantastic because um, that means, I guess, it's not as widely known, this story. So, um, so this is the story of how Rebbe Nachman became a Rebbe. And uh, I, I feel like this story can really open up a person's heart. It opens up my heart every time I, I say it. Um, so... So when Rebbe Nachman was about something like 14, he got married. And, you know, the lifespan of people in, in, in Russia at that point was pretty short. So people got married much earlier. And, um, and so this, this is the story of his wedding day. And he was standing outside of the hall where he's getting married. And people are showing up. And Rebbe Nachman, really, it's, he's, you know... I mean, you can imagine what he must have been like if, you know, a couple hundred years after his death, tens of thousands of people are showing up from all over the world to, to make this trek to the Ukraine, you know? I mean, so, so he was an amazing soul, to say the least. I mean, we don't even know. We, we have no clue. But anyway, so he was uh, about 14 years old at this point, and he's standing outside of his wedding hall, 
and people are showing up. And each person who comes, he's looking them in the eye and he says, why are you here? And you can imagine that that, that would probably be a very, very intimidating thing. Like Rebbe Nachman of Breslov is looking you in the eye and saying, why are you here? And so, you know, people are sort of like fumfering and they're like, well, you know, you haven't seen me since you were a little boy, but I'm your cousin's uncle, you know, whatever it is, or, or we never met, I'm, 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 I'm a relative from, I'm on the bride's side, or whatever it is, everyone's kind of coming up with some kind of like, you know, kind of awkward thing to say at, at the moment to sort of like justify their presence at, a, at his simcha, you know. And then there's another young guy who's also on fire, and he shows up, and he looks at him and he says, why are you here? And he looks him back, he looks Rabbi Nachman back in the eye and he says, you know, I lie in bed every night asking myself the same question. <laughs> and so he was the first person who understood what Rabbi Nachman was actually asking. And then he said, and he said, there's a group of us who meet in the forest and we also ask ourselves the same question. And Rabbi Nachman went and he started learning with them and that's how he became a Rebbe. So that was his first group of, uh, of, of Hasidim. You know, so so why are we here, right? This is this is the big question. This is the big question, and you know, I gave a talk. I, I I'm just mentioning it because I liked the title so much. You know, it's a, it's a it's a running joke about these talks, but it's it's actually not a joke. It's true, which is every once in a while someone asks me, so what do you what's the topic? And I say, well, first we give the talk, then we then we announce the topic. So, <laughs> which is very true. So the talk from a few weeks ago was called How Crazy Is It That We Even Exist, right? And so if I can maybe sum up one aspect of that talk just right now, and, and I believe that this is, to, to my limited understanding, I believe that this is the definition of enlightenment among all people in the world, okay? Among every spiritual path. I, I actually think that this is the definition of enlightenment. When people, you know, people travel to the far reaches of the world to get enlightenment, right? So I think this is it, which is that how crazy is it that we even exist? <laughs> I'll elaborate. You see, a lot of people, a lot of people, like can you imagine like opening up a book, like you want to read a novel, you want to read a mystery or whatever it is. And so you go, oh, I can't wait to read this book. It's going to be so good. It's by my favorite author. Right, God. <laughs> and then you open up in the you open up on page seventy two. Like who would open up a, a book, a mystery on page seventy two? Who would do such a thing? Like it doesn't make any sense. I, I'll give you a, a, a more sort of like a mundane uh, example, which is um, I don't know if any of you are fans of the show Seinfeld, right? One of the greatest comedies of all time. Um, Seinfeld is all built on callbacks. Like, it's a very intricate story structure. Callbacks mean that when you establish a joke in the beginning, and then you make reference later on to the joke later on in the, in the episode, right? So it's, it's funny because it's been set up, and you don't expect to hear the joke again, but they call it back. That's uh, comedy lingo. Anyway, I once had the experience of turning on a Seinfeld episode in the middle. I didn't understand a single thing. Because everything, all these punchlines were references to stuff that happened earlier in the episode. And I had no clue what was going on. So, 
this is our life. This is our life, and this is the mistake that everybody makes. And it's, it's hard to call it a mistake because it's so natural. But nonetheless, we're getting back to the definition of enlightenment right now, which is the most common thing, the most prevalent thing in the world, is you say, okay, God, why is this going on in my life? Why is that going on in my life? Why isn't this going on in my life? Why isn't that going on in my life? And then it's sort of like, that's people's consciousness, right? So, but a person, if they want to really, really be connected, they have to go back to page one. And, and before even page one, right? Which is the idea, the understanding that there doesn't have to even be a world. No one said there had to be a world. This is an awesome thing that God even made a world and he even made you and me, and that we're alive in this world that doesn't have to exist at all. So if you think about that, it's like, and now, now we're getting to the definition of enlightenment, for real. Which is like, you mean there's a world, and I even exist in this world? Now if a person can make that their dominant, their dominant go-to place, the seat of their conscious mind then everything is precious. Everything is precious at that point. Because then it's sort of like, everything that you see is just a manifestation of godliness. Everything you see is a treasure of some sort. So this is, so, so, so in halacha, there's some very, there's a complicated uh, section of halacha. It's called um, ikr and tafel. Okay? And it has to do with um, making blessings. All right, and so I'll give you an example, just so you just so you have an idea. We we can't get into the whole thing, and and I don't know it so well anyway. But um, like for instance, if you have two things mixed together, what do you make the blessing of? Like for instance, ikr means the essence, tuffle means extra. So a person has to be mindful. What is the essence, and what is extra? So the way, it, the way it manifests itself in bruchas are, let's say you have a fried chicken cutlet, for instance, in breadcrumbs. Well, you have two blessings going on there. You have the breadcrumbs, that's, 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 that's wheat, so that's grain, that's a mizonos, that's one blessing. Then you have the chicken, that's a shayakol, that's another blessing. And normally speaking, a mizonos takes precedence over a shayakol. The grain takes precedence over, say, the meat. Right? Because it's a much more involved process, humanly speaking anyway, in terms of making that grain. So, However, you're probably not eating the chicken cutlet for the breaded exterior. You're probably eating the chicken cutlet for the chicken. Right? So the chicken is the essence. So, so, so you would say a shakol, you would say it over the chicken, even though there are two different species there that, that theoretically you could make the blessing over. And the grain, normally speaking, which would come first, here you're not even saying it at all. So these things get complicated. Then you have something where it's mixed together, like let's say a bowl of chicken soup, where you've got noodles, the soup, and vegetables. Okay? So, or in a matzo bowl, say. So in an instance like that, where things are distinct, um, the preferred way, as I understand it, as, I, as I've learned, is to make several blessings. Right? This is assuming that you didn't wash for bread beforehand. Right? So you would make a mizonos on the chicken, uh, on, 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 the, on the matzo bowl. 
you would make an ad, uh, or on the noodles, you would make an adama on the vegetable, and then you would make a shakol on the soup. Okay? So there would be an example where you have a lot of things together, but you make several blessings, as opposed to a chicken cutlet or a piece of pie where you've got the filling and the crust where maybe you'd probably only make one blessing. And the question is, what's the blessing that you make? Okay, so this is just an introduction to an idea so that you are more sensitized to when you make blessings. And then you can ask a, a rabbi who knows what he's talking about, and, and he'll tell you like what, what to do in, in each instance. But again, all these blessings that we make are just to sensitize ourselves to like what is being revealed. God is revealing something before us, and we want to we want to make a blessing, but not just a blessing. We want to say the most accurate, the most accurate praise of God. It's a beautiful thing. That's a, a very Jewish, very Jewish approach to life. We don't want to just praise God. We want to praise Him in the most precise, beautiful way. Because the more specificity that we bring to the praise, the greater the praise is. That's the that's the idea behind it. But anyway, getting back to the more general idea of consciousness. A person in life has to know what the essence is and what the extra is, what the ikkar is and what the tuffle is. And the essence is that there's even a world. <laughs> because again, God did not have to make the world. You know, we lose sight of that. And this is what I mean. This is why I told you, what does it mean that you, the, the, the new mystery, because life is a mystery, life will, will always be a mystery. Even after 120, when we go up and our soul ascends to, to Shemaim, to heaven, and we get the answers to all of our questions down here. By the way, one of the greatest teachings I ever heard, listen to this. A friend of mine told me, he said that, that after 120, at the end of our, our lives, it should be full, we should all live long, that, um, that you'll get the answer to all of your questions, but there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Now, you don't have the answer to your questions, but there's something you can do about it. That's amazing teaching. I'll say that again. The end of 120, at the end of one's life, we're going to get all the answers to all of our questions about our life. But there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. Right now, we don't have the answer, but there's still something we can do about it. You see, there are a lot of people who imagine themselves to be great sophisticates. And they say, oh, I'm not going to do that until you tell me exactly, till you prove it to me, or you tell me exactly how it works. You know what? Good luck. Do you know exactly how aspirin works? But you take it anyway, right? Do you know how your computer, could you fix your computer if I took a baseball bat to it? No, but you still turn it on, right? So, I mean, you know, at a certain point, a person has to be a little bit humble and say that this world is far more complex and we are the recipients of an incredible tradition that goes back to, really, in many ways, to Adam HaRishon, to the, to the first human beings. Also, of course, to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and our holy mothers, and all the prophets, and Moshe, and everyone, right? You see, what people, what people don't understand is that God who made this world in this very mysterious way also told us how to access it. You see, can you imagine, like, imagine I say to you, 
oh, you know something, um, imagine it, we'll put it in sort of royal language, like the, a king says to his subject, you have found favor in my eyes. I, I'm going to build you this amazing palace. So, so he builds this incredible, intricate structure with dozens of rooms and bedrooms and staircases and hallways and everything like this, and then brings them there at nighttime and doesn't tell them where any of the light switches are. <laughs> They're stumbling around. Oh, I, I can't see... I can't see anything. I'm tripping. I'm falling. Now I'm hitting my head. Now I'm bumping into this. Thank you for this elaborate. Pre- now I'm falling down the stairs. <laughs> you know, thank you for this great present, King. I can't see anything. I don't know where I'm going. I'm hurting myself. I just broke my leg. Like, who would give a present like this? Something so vast and, and generous and not tell the person how to use it. So I heard Rabbi Matasyahu Solomon, who's the, um, the spiritual leader, the mash- mashkiach at uh, Lakewood Yeshiva, and he said something very beautiful. He said that um, he was in the kitchen with his wife, and he saw that they had just bought a new blender, and they saw that the blender came with a 32-page book of instructions. And the, the, they were talking, and they said, look, a blender comes with a 32-page book of instructions. Could it be that the world doesn't come with a book of instructions? Could, could it be? Could it be that there would be a God who would create this vast universe and then put you in it and not tell you how to use it? Does it make any sense whatsoever? Well, you say, well, yeah, well... Yeah, but if, maybe, maybe it does, if God is an evil dictator. Because what would be, that would be just the most wonderful form of torture, wouldn't it? Just create this huge labyrinth and just stick people in it and have them wander around forever. But then how do you explain chocolate? (laughs) How do you explain color? I'm being very serious. God could have created the world in black and white. He could have. I mean, you know, one of the things that is like delights me is to open up a a, uh, a a a catalog for clothing stores and look at all the names of the colors. Right? You know, you know, no one, no, no company in their right mind uses the word blue anymore. <laughs> it's robin's egg, right? Right or green, it's kale or seaweed or you know it's there's no green or blue anyway. And and but the but the but the truth is, I mean, it's marketing, yeah. But they're also they really are just endless shades of color. And and what about tastes? Would you agree that this world would have been absolutely perfectly fine in your eyes without kumquats? But, but you know what? God, God, who knows everything, disagreed. God said, you know what? My world is not complete without kumquats. Now, if this isn't proof of a good God that he's given us color and taste. Now, I'm, I'm using color and taste. I'm not just coming up with this off the top of my head. This is from, from David HaMelech. It says in the Tehillim, in the Psalms, it says, taste and see that God is good. 
That's what it says in the, in the Psalms. Taste and see that God is good. In other words, all of the tastes of this world, all there, didn't have, all there could have been was like, you know, like we could have eaten wood. Like, and then just like, oh yeah, of course. Did you get your bamboo today? You know, and, and that's all there is to eat. There absolutely, and I'm not exaggerating at all, there absolutely could have been a world where everyone just eats wood. I mean, termites eat wood. You know, pandas eat bamboo, that's wood. Everyone could have just eaten wood. And the world could have been in black and white. And that would have been the easiest thing in the world, right? But, it, but it's not that. It's not that. So the point is, is that God who's good didn't just create this vast thing and then throw us in it for us to be existentially confused for all of our days trying to figure out everything. No, he created this world and he told us how to use it. These are the mitzvot. These are the, translated as the commandments, but it's not a great translation. It's, it's mitzvot, uh, Reb Shlomo s- said these are divine pathways. These are ways to connect with Hashem. Each one, a, a mitzvah actually means something that binds you, that's something that ties you. These are ways for us to connect with, with God, every single one of these things. You know, so, so that, that's, that's the beauty of this world. God told us how to connect with him. He made the world and then he told us how to use it. Okay. So, so I want to tell you a story and we'll still build to just talking about the sukkah maybe a little bit later, God willing, or at least the, the cycle of the holidays. But I want to tell you this story because this story is very precious to me. I, I heard it, um, I heard it recently uh, from Rabbi Stern, and he said that it's a true story, and I, we don't know the, the name of the Rebbe who, who, whose name this is in, so I apologize, but, but, but here's the story. And, and just to introduce it for one moment, the reason why I like this story so much is because um, it, it's because I think that there's a, um, an approach to bringing people close to God and Torah being modeled here, which I think is, 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 is a model for us and, and, and it's an inspiration for me, okay? Just in terms of the gentleness and yet the, the wisdom behind it. Okay, so with that as an introduction. So there's a Rebbe, and again, this is told as a true story. There's a Rebbe... Um, and he had, like, one of the people in his community uh, left, left the fold, so to speak, stopped being observant. So he's not, he's not keeping mitzvahs anymore. But there he is in this uh, religious community, and, and I guess he has some connection because he's still talking with the Rebbe. So the Rebbe realizes that this person has reached this point in his life where he's basically kind of, you know, kind of quit, basically. And he says to him, he says, listen, I want you to promise me one thing. I want you to promise me one thing. That, that no matter what, like I know you're kind of doing your thing right now, right? But I want you to promise me that no matter what, you will keep this one minug. Now a minug 
is a, is a tradition. We have um, mitzvot. These are things that we're obligated to do. And then we have something called min, min, minhagim, which are customs. And the customs are, are very, very deep and, and also have an aspect of prophecy to them as well. And, and also oftentimes they're beautifications of the mitzvahs. So, but, but we make the separation. We say this is something that one is obligated to do, but a minig is, one is not obligated to do it for the most part. For, you know, for the most part. Um, and, um, and so he says to this person who's now not doing the things that he has to do, right? He says to him, I want you to promise me one thing, that no matter what you do, you'll keep this one minhag, this one custom. And, and, and that is not to say tachanun on Fridays. Now, just that, I, that was, that, I, I used a little bit of fancy language there. Let me just explain. Tachanun is um, a very specific prayer that we say, uh, that we say during, um, during, during the service. Actually, we don't say it on holidays. And, um, and on special occasions, we don't say it. Okay, so, and then different communities, because you, you have to actually kind of put your head down on your arm on the table, and it's sort of like, there's kind of like a, a sad aspect to it. Like, basically what it's doing is, every once in a while in the Torah, you'll read that Moshe prostrated himself before God, like he basically laid down on his stomach and stretched out his arms and just completely supplicated before God. Tachanun is our way of doing that, but we kind of do it in a very sort of like, kind of compact way, no one's like lying on the floor or anything like that. You just kind of put your forehead on your arm on the, on the, on the tabletop in front of you, and then that sort of like substitutes from this full prostration, okay, for this full prostration. So anyway, many communities, like, they, they, they're not into Tachanun, and they're actually, they're, there's actually a book that exists that one, one tradition is that if there's a Rebbe's yurt site or anything that even approaches a minor holiday, Oh, no Tachanun, right? That's like, like, and then other communities are like really into Tachanun, you know? So it's kind of like weird, you know? But Hasidim historically are like, any excuse that they can have not to say Tachanun, they don't want to say Tachanun. Okay. Just because, you know, they feel so, it's kind of like a bit of a sad negative vibe. So anyway, on Fridays, there are some communities that because, because there's this great holiday coming up called Shabbos, Right? So there are some communities that every Friday, that's enough of a holiday, they're not saying Tachanun. Okay. So now let's, now that you get what Tachanun is and everything like this and a short history of Tachanun, now let's go back to what the Rebbe is saying to this person. This person has left religion completely. And he says to him, promise me this one thing. You will keep our minag, our custom, of not saying Tachanun on Fridays. Now, if you think for a moment, the guy's not praying at all. <laughs> this person isn't saying Tachanun. He's keeping that custom seven days a week. Do you understand? Do you understand what, what's going on here? So the Rebbe is saying to him, promise me, that you're not, you'll keep this minute of not saying Tachanun on Friday. Now, to me, now, the end of the story, by the way, and then I'll tell you my own 
commentary why I love this so much, but, but, but the end of the story, as it was told to me, is that this person felt like, well, wait a second, how can I, in order to not say Tachunun on Fridays, I have to go to shul on Fridays and then not say Tachunun. Right? Because otherwise, how am I not saying Tachunun? So he started going to shul once a week on Fridays in order not to say Tachunun. And then after a period of time, he was a full member of the community again. That was completely observant. Okay? But, okay, that's the end of the story. Now, but, but here's what I love about this story. Is that here a person now decided that he was doing nothing. And the Rebbe found a way to connect his doing nothing with the act of observance of something. In other words, by doing nothing, he was doing something. Because he was never going to say Tachanun on Fridays anyway. That's the last thing that he's going to do, right? But by now not doing any, by now not even going to Shul on Friday, not saying Tachanun on Friday, he was not just, he was actually keeping something. And what was he keeping something? The one thing that the Rebbe made him promise he's going to keep. And it's something that's not just a mitzvah, it's a minig, it's on top of a mitzvah, it's a beautification of a mitzvah, it's a higher level of, of, of dveikas kite, of connection and cleaving. So now the Rebbe, through his wisdom, found a way, through this guy's complete lack of doing anything, to flip it over and make him observe on a very high level, through an action. <laughs> this is gorgeous. That's gorgeous. That's such spiritual genius at work. And you see that the way the story ended, probably if he told it to ten different people, ten people, ten different people would probably institute that advice ten different ways. But the, 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 the account that we have is what I told you. And it led that person back. So what I love about that is, again, let's go back to, to our initial thought. The fact that this world even exists. You see, so many of us, we're opening up this mystery book, right? Because a lot of us are feel plunged into this palace with the lights are out. And we don't know where the light switch are, is. You know, this is because life is, is a mystery. And what I was saying before, just to complete the thought, that even after 120, even after we get all the answers to our questions, we still aren't going to see the fullness of God. We'll see dramatically quantum extra levels of revelation of godliness. But we don't see the fullness of God even in the next world. Because God is infinite and, and then we will be in a more angelic form. But even angels say, where is the place of your glory? Because they don't see the fullness of God. So in other words, this, this, this world, this universe, in all of its dimensions, never stops being on some profound level mysterious. Because God is infinite and we're finite. Just, just simple math. But the point is, on what page are you opening up the book? Are you opening up the book on page 72? Where it's sort of like, 
okay, God, here I am, and, and here's what I need, or here's what I really don't need, and what's going on? Or are we opening up the, page, the book on page one going, you know, and God created the heavens and the earth? It's like, oh, man. God created the heavens and the earth? I guess he didn't have to create the heavens and the earth. Like, what is the starting point of my consciousness in this world? And I was privileged to hear from Reb Shlomo. I was at a, a Pesach Seder that he led in Florida many years ago. And, um, and he said that, you know, there are four sons, right? And, and, and there's the wise son and the, the wicked son and you know, the, the fourth son is the son who can't even ask a question. And Reb Shlomo said that in Hasidus, the fourth son, the one who can't even ask the question, is the highest of all the four sons. So he said, why? Because why can't he ask the question? Because he's too busy blowing his mind over the fact that there's even a God. You mean there's a God? And he took us out of Egypt and we're his people. He's just blowing his mind just so much on the premise of reality that he can't even begin to get to the point to even ask a question. So this is enlightenment. This is enlightenment. And then when a person is in this frame of mind, then they can understand the ichor from the tuffle. That which is essential and that which is extra. Now, that doesn't mean, listen carefully, that doesn't mean that the quote-unquote tuffle, the extra stuff, that there's not an urgency to it and that it's not important and that we don't have needs and Hashem should bless us with all of our needs. We need what we need. It's not a joke. There's nothing funny about it. We need what we need. At the same time, though, we can't just identify the essence of ourselves with what our needs are. Because if all I am is, a, is, is need, then I've skipped pages 1 through 71, you know, in this example. I've skipped the fact that I even exist, that the world even exists. So, so now let's, 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 let's talk about Sukkot a little bit. So Sukkot is like really amazing because the, the, the Sukkah is, is basically, it's a hut and it's really low tech. You know, I'll tell you how low-tech it is, okay? <clears throat> At the same time, it's this space-time portal. You know what I mean? It's the most advanced form of technology, spiritual technology in the world, really. Not joking, right? It's literally heaven and earth combined. But we'll leave that off to the side for a moment. Just to look at it with your eyes, it's so low-tech. But here, here's, here's, here's what I love, okay? I know some people and, and some people who, who have some money, right? And, and they're, 
they were just sort of like felling, you know, they were so proud. They were talking about a particular sukkah that they were in, and they said, you know, the sukkah, like, you know, they're just going to tell you how, how amazing it is. This sukkah has a sink with running water. <laughs> Can you imagine if you, like, said, we're, you know, like, tell me about, um, what did you do today? I'll tell you something. I went to a house today, someone's house. It has a sink inside the house. <laughs> like, what, what would you say? You'd be like, yeah, all right, you know. What is this, like 1875? Like, this is like headline news, you know. The, you know, like the most, the most run-down place in the world has a sink, for goodness sake, right? But to show you how low-tech a sukkah is, here are wealthy people just like, just blowing their minds over the fact that there's a sink in the sukkah. And that's like, wow, that's like the heights, right? So, so a suk, and yet, and yet, given the fact that it's like completely spare, right? It, there's no luxury in it whatsoever. Isn't it the most luxurious setting in the world? I mean, you can go into a sukkah that hardly has any decoration at all in it, you know? Maybe no decoration. Maybe it's just just that, um, that kind of tarp on, on four sides or whatever it is, and with the schach, the greenery, or the bamboo on top, you just sit and you feel like, oh man, I just walked into Tiffany's, right? Like this, I feel so good. I feel so good. So, so one of the things that I think Hashem is, is telling us, we're talking about the ikr and the tuffle, right? The essence and, and all the add-ons is you walk into a sukkah after Rosh Hashanah, after Yom Kippur, after we're getting to this place of being grounded, that we're being real with ourselves, we're being real with our souls, we're being real with God, and we walk into this, this place, and God is saying, what do you need exactly? What exactly do you need? You know, look how you've got, there's nothing here. How do you feel? You feel good? Right? Because you're just tapping into the most important things in the world. Just existence itself. Just the fact that there's you, there's me, says God. How good is that? How about we just use that as the starting point? Right? And do you feel good? I feel great. I feel great. So, so that's, that's really special. That's really, really special. And, you know, they talk about that the, that the sukkah, see, for a sukkah to be kosher, it has to have more shade than sun. Right? That's, that's, because not everyone has enough schach or covering to cover the entire thing. But for a sukkah to be kosher, it's got to have more shade than sunlight. Because... That's got to be our approach. We've got to know that it's sort of like, you know what? This world, it's more good than bad. It's more good than bad. And, uh, and, and we have to live that. We have to feel that. We have to experience it in a, in a real way. Um, the Ishvitzer Rebbe has a teaching which is very interesting. 
the halacha is, the law is, that the walls of a sukkah can't be more than 20 amos high. An amma is about, that, that's really tall, by the way. 20 amos is really tall. Because an amma is maybe three or four feet, something like this. So, so now listen to what he says. He says that the reason why, um, the reason why it can't be higher than that, right? Because you can imagine if you're going to have a sukkah with, with walls that high, it's going to be probably, most likely, a really big sukkah, right? So he says because if they're taller than that, then the shade, right? Because the shade really represents God's goodness in a way. Right? Because even, even David HaMelech, even King David in the Psalms, in the Tehillim, says that compares God to the shade. Because I don't know if you've experienced this. I have many, many times in life. Um, you're walking down the street and it's very, very sunny and it's hot. And then you walk and there's a tree. And all of a sudden you're standing in the shade and then a breeze comes. I mean, it's just like, you talk about the simple pleasures of life. That's like you feel like, ah, thank you, God. You know, so even King David, you know, thousands of years ago is already comparing God to like the shade. So the Ishbitzer Rebbe says that if the walls are too high, the shade that you're experiencing is going to be from the walls, not from the schach, not from the, the greenery above. Now, who builds the walls? You build the walls. So if the shade that you're experiencing is from the work of your own hands, then that means that basically you're just getting contentment from your own actions, not from your relationship with God. Because the shade isn't coming from above. The shade is coming from you because you built the walls. And if the walls are too high, the shade is coming from the walls. So that's not the spiritually nourishing shade because you want the shade from above, from on high. That's God telling you it's, it's, it's okay, it's okay. It's not so bad, it's okay, it's okay. I'm here with you. I'm giving you relief. I'm protecting you. You want that shade. So that's a, an interesting kind of like insight into kind of the blueprint of, of how this works because we say that that sitting in the sukkah actually increases someone's amuna, someone's faith in God. Because there are all these different metaphysical things that are being transacted while you're sitting in a sukkah. And one of them is receiving the shade from above. That's something that's inputting itself on your soul. Now, I want to tell you something, which I I heard, uh, I ran into someone in the street on the way to shul, and he told me this in the name of Rabbi Ru. I like this because I've never heard this before, and it's a very different perspective, okay? So we're going to approach it from a very, very different angle right now. Okay, all of these things are working on many, many, many different levels. Now, just to set up this teaching for a moment, you see, the, the, the sukkah on one level also represents an exile. You should know, Okay? And usually we, we are saying only the most positive things about a sukkah because all those things are 100% true. At the same time, though, remember, we lived in sukkahs on the way between Egypt and Israel. Okay? 
And that time in the desert is a time of exile. All right? Because we haven't gotten into Israel yet. So the time in the sukkah is also an aspect of exile. And in fact, when we read, um, when we read about the sukkah and the siddur, one of the kavanas, one of the holy intentions that a person can have in mind is that it says, if there was a decree of exile put upon me for this year, please, God, may I have fulfilled it through my time in the sukkah. Because a person is leaving their home and spending their time in the sukkah. So since they've been, so to speak, exiled from their house on some level, right? That's, again, a different perspective, but this is also something that the rabbis understood was being communicated to us. Since a person is being exiled on some level, that this should count as a fulfillment of the decree of the exile, if, God forbid, we were supposed to ex- experience exile. Okay? Now, with that in mind, I'll tell you the teaching that I heard. You see, there's, there's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to these days. And uh, getting yourself acquainted with the rhythm is, is very, very important. Someone who, um, who's not observant is not in this rhythm. And it's, it's, it's great to be in this rhythm because this is sort of the, 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 the cosmic algorithm, if you will. And you, you would like to be in harmony with the cosmic algorithm. You, you, you want to be that. But in order to do that, you have to be in sync with the holidays. Right? That's, that's important. And so, you know, I'll tell you something. One of the most beautiful things, I had such a special moment last night. I was putting my, my, my 10-year-old to bed last night, Talia. And she just said spontaneously, she said, um, she said, you know what? If there wasn't Shabbos, it would be bad. It would be bad. And, you know, just this cute 10-year-old girl in her pajamas with, like, the cover up to her neck... And then she said, and if there wasn't Pesach and Hanukkah, it would be bad. It would be bad. She really was just going on. Like she, she had gotten to the point at, at 10 to, um, she was like thinking, what, what would life be without Shabbos? Not good. Not good. And so, so this is, this is the divine rhythm. And, and we, we, we should all aspire to get into it because the truth is, is that in the very beginning, or if you make half steps toward it, it feels, it's very hard to do and it feels very awkward because a person has their own rhythm. So I have my own rhythm. And it's like, I remember I was waltzing with someone once in college, and I'm not, I, I didn't take to it immediately, and I hadn't had any lessons, and it didn't feel good, and then the person yelled at me. <laughs> it was just very embarrassing and awful, and, you know, but I didn't know the rhythm. I had my own rhythm, which was the rhythm of not knowing what to do, basically. <laughs> and, and it didn't, 
You know, so a lot of people, they, they bring their own rhythm, which they've acquired over decades of life, and then they get introduced to this other rhythm, and it's like, I don't know how to do that rhythm, and that rhythm is, I don't know that dance step. It's hard for me, you know, and I don't like it. But if you stick to it, and if you try it, and if you stick to it, all of a sudden you're like, wow, life without that is bad. You know, it's like, so, but a person has to allow themselves to get acquainted with that rhythm. And oftentimes, the older a person is, a lot of times, the, the more they have to stick with it until it clicks in. But once it clicks in, then it's divine. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we're in the middle of this rhythm right now. It starts with Rosh Hashanah, it goes to Yom Kippur, then it goes into Sukkot, then it culminates with Hoshana Rabbah. Now Hoshana Rabbah doesn't get a lot of press, but Hoshana Rabbah is a very, very great day, and that's why I, I really want to emphasize it. And in fact, I heard from Rebbe Eli Chaim, who is Reb Shlomo's twin brother, he said that by the Bavavar Hasidim, that Hoshana Rabbah is the holiest day in the year. And in a lot of ways, it is the holiest day in the year, because... Our tradition is, is that the judgment, whatever it is, is written on Rosh Hashanah, it's sealed on Yom Kippur, and it's delivered on Hoshana Rabbah. So Hoshana Rabbah is the culmination of all of these things, okay? Now Hoshana Rabbah is the last day of Sukkot. This year it's Tuesday night. Now there's a tradition to stay up all night learning. And I'll be doing that, I'll be teaching all night, God willing, um, in the Sukkah at the Happy Minion, if you want to come. Um, and usually, I don't know when we'll start, maybe 11 o'clock, maybe 12 o'clock, I'll send out an email, and we'll go to 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, we'll learn different things, and, um, and so because it's sort of like, and then also, by the way, just an announcement, we have once a year a music, uh, halal, with musical instruments. Now, you, you don't find that so much um, uh, in the past 2,000 years, because <laughs> basically that would be something that they would do in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So there aren't a lot of places that you, you will ever find a Hallel with musical instruments. Usually Hallel is said on uh, a holiday where we're not allowed to play musical instruments. So since Hoshana Rabbah is a day where you can go to work and spend money and get in your car and use electricity and all those things, it's one of the reasons why Hoshana Rabbah is so great because it is so hidden in a lot of ways because it's not something a person has to take off work for. You see, it's something that you have to um, really want to do. You have to want to observe it, basically. And um, that's going to get into this next thought. But, but I'm just telling you that if you want to do Hallel with musical instruments and Yehuda Solomon is in town, he's not always in town on Sukkot, so it's going to be an especially good one. It's going to be at B'nai David. Uh, Wednesday morning. So try to make a point of that. A lot of people feel like that's one of the greatest times in the whole year. I'm not sure. Um, 845, but it's pretty long. It goes to about noon. So, so, uh, but try to make it for Hallel. That would probably be probably closer to 10, I would guess. Um, anyway, so, so what is this, what is this rhythm culminating in Hoshana Rabbah? So it's really in two sections. The first section from Rosh Hashanah, and you could even say starting in Elul, but from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, is what we call Tshuva Miyira. Tshuva from the place of awe, and of course on the spectrum of awe, of Yira, 
The higher level is, it will translate as awe, which means you're blowing your mind that you're in the king's palace, and you don't want to, like, track mud into the king's palace, basically. You don't want to knock over these, like, elaborate crystal vases, like, you know, and smash them on the ground. You want to be very, very careful, right? So that's, that's the higher level, that's awe. The majesty of the king is before you, right? So you don't want to do anything to mess up the relationship because it's so exalted. Now, on that same spectrum of awe, that's the higher level. The lower level of that is fear, okay? So often it's translated, yira is often translated as fear of God. But that's the lower level. The higher level that we want to aspire to is awe of God. In other words, the lower level is fear of God. I'm not doing anything wrong because I don't want God to smack me, right? I don't want to get zapped. So that's why I'm not doing anything wrong. But the more exalted manifestation of that instinct is, God is so great. How could I even like think of imagining of doing anything, right? That's the same, that's the same instinct, but it's a much more elevated level of it, okay? Um, now, that's Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. But then Sukkot kip, kip, kicks in, and then we have Tshuva returning to God from the standpoint of love. Right? Because remember, there are two wings to the dove. The Jewish people are compared to a dove. And one you can't fly without two wings. Otherwise, you just go around in circles. Okay? can't get anywhere without two wings. One wing is love. The other wing is awe. They have to be balanced. And you can always give yourself a, um, you know, a, 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 a spiritual checkup, right? Because you can ask yourself, in terms of your relationship with God, if you're in a place where it's sort of like, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. God's just going to do what he wants to do. Okay, then you need some vitamin L. You need a little love in there, right? You have to increase your understanding of how much God loves you. Then if you're in a place where it's sort of like, God loves me so much, I can eat all the pork I like because that's how much God loves me. Then you need a little more yira. You need a little more awe of the king. You know, and, and so you can measure where you're at and then you can self-medicate, you know, in terms of whether you need to concentrate more on feeling God's love or putting yourself a little bit more in check and realize you're a creation and you have a master over you, right? So that's, that's, that's kind of like a toolkit there. Now, now the idea is, come Sukkot's time, we're really returning to God out of love. Now, I want to give you this example, which is a lot of people feel like when things are going wrong in their life, it's sort of like, God, why are you doing this to me? And why are you doing that to me? And then when things are going good in your life and you're having a good time, you're like, God, just stay out of it, okay? Let me just, <laughs> let me just do this and enjoy and you stay over there, right? So the idea is that that's not a healthy relationship. What we want to do is we want to celebrate our good times with God as well. It's very important. And by the way, I heard a beautiful, beautiful teaching, and it's really in praise of women, actually, which is that if you see in, the, in our time in the desert, 
um, you'll see that, you know, like the sin of the spies, for instance, those were led by the, the ten uh, Nussis, the ten leaders of the tribes who were men, right? Actually, there were 12, but 10 kind of brought back a bad report about Israel, and that threw all of human history off to this day. Um, but none of them were women. You see by the sin of the golden calf that it was done by men, that you know, the rabbis go out of their way to emphasize the fact that women absolutely did not participate in that. So you see like the two main incidents where we went way off were done by men and not by women. So I heard someone ask this question. I, I, I don't know who to attribute this thought to. But it's a beautiful insight. Why is it that the women got it right more than the men got it right? Where did that come from? And what they wanted to do is they wanted to trace it back to Miriam. Miriam was, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu's, Moses' older sister, and she was a prophet herself, and she was the leader of the women. And you see something which is just like so, 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 so beautiful, which is it says after the miracle of the splitting of the sea, when we were, you know, amazingly saved from this, like, you know, like the chariots that were advancing to us. I heard a rabbi explain it in these words. That was the most advanced military technology of the day. You know, you have to understand, those chariots were like, like we were like goners, and our back was against the wall to the sea. You know, one of my favorite stories. Um, and then the Medrash says, so you have the, the, the sea behind you, and then and the, and the, the chariots, which was like a very big deal, very, you know, depressing because it was so advanced that artillery coming at us and then it says wild animals were coming at us from the left and the right so we were really sunk right so i was i was telling that to my eldest son who at that point was i don't know four years old maybe and we were, I, I i said to him moshe there the uh, uh, and we were we were in the dining room at the time when I when I told him this. I said, I said, the, the the sea is to your back, and the chariots are coming toward you, and there are wild animals coming to you from the left and the right. Where are you going to go? And he said, to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the point is that um, the point is that that it was an amazing salvation. And then if you read on, it says, and then Miriam led the women with, in dancing with tambourines. And this is the point. Where did they get the tambourines from? <laughs> In the middle of the desert, you know? Like, you know, there, you know well, there's the food court. And then, you know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, Tambourines are us. Let's go there. You know, how many have you got? You know, there's, there were no tambourines available. So, but here's the point. They brought them because they understood, even though they were walking millions of people in a, the desert, complete desolation, that God was going to save them and they were going to have what to celebrate. They just understood and had perfect faith that there was going to be things to celebrate and we're, of course we need tambourines because we're going to be dancing while we celebrate. So, so this is the greatness of the women. And the way I, I, I heard the teaching that because they 
had already incorporated God in terms of their happiest moments, then, then they became protected from mistakes. Because a lot of people just, you know, in our frailty, in our frailty, and this is all of us, we have made many of our happiest moments those things that we do apart from God. And this is sad. That's sad. And that's not, it's not great. It's really not great. And so part of the rectification of our relationship with God is making sure that our happiest moments are with God as well. This is why, you know, I daven at a place, I pray at a place called the Happy Minute. Because <laughs> the idea is that you, you know, you go there and there's dancing and there's singing and there's jumping and there's, you know, vodka if you need it, you know, but that's very much not the point, you know. Almost no one drinks there at all, but you can have a shot of vodka at the end if you need it, if you want it. But that's very much a P.S. It's just celebrating with God. Just celebrating with God. And um, that's this time of year. That's this time of year. And so now I want to tell you, I told you I want to tell you a teaching from that someone told me I ran into him in the street, he said, in the name of Rabbi Ru. So from a very different perspective. So now I want to tell you that teaching. I haven't told it to you yet. He said that if you think of it in terms of a couple, like we're phrasing it now, and the couple getting it together, I mentioned to you that the sukkah on one level is a little bit like, um, like exile. That it's a little bit like you know, your, your husband or your wife or whatever it is has thrown you out of the house. And so you're in the sukkah, which is kind of like you've been thrown out of the house. And the idea is when you figure out the relationship, then you can come back into the house. And again, it's a very different way of looking at it. It's a very different perspective, but I'll tell you why I like it. <clears throat> if that's the only thing you'd say on the sukkah, I wouldn't like it, by the way. I'd be like, oh, who else is teaching today? I'm going to go to one of their classes, you know? But <laughs> the reason why I like it just as a spice, as one element in the bigger picture, is the idea that we're still working on our relationship. That's the point. And we're still trying to get it right. And... Um, there is a perspective, and this is also from the rabbis, this perspective, that, you know what, we had Rosh Hashanah, and we had Yom Kippur, and now it's done, let's celebrate. That idea is also there, by the way. But, but it's also there within the context of Hoshana Rabbah hasn't happened yet. Okay? And so that means that there's still work to do, and there's still fixing to do. And that fixing is being done within the context of this relationship. Um, and so, and so that's there too. So, um, all right, let's stop there.